0: what now so this morning we're starting a new sermon series in the book of matthew matthew 24 and 25 we're going to be spending the next seven weeks in the book of matthew 24 and 25 and what we're looking at is the question of what now what now you know over the last year we've seen things happen in our society that have never happened before And as a pastor, you get all these different questions. And one of the main questions is, is this the end? You know, you're watching YouTube videos that say the vaccine is the mark of the beast and YouTube videos that say that the Lord is coming within this last year. And the reality is, is as we look at these things and we look at what is happening in our society, I don't know if the Lord is coming in the next year or not. But the reality is, is that I pray that he would come as soon as possible. And we say together, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, all right. Uh, But the reality is, at the same time, is is how does everything that's going on in our society today uh, affect us? Does it change what we're called to, and does it change what our mission and our vision is as a Christian? The answer is no. You see, we are called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded us. We are called to live for the pleasure and praise and the fame of God's name. So whether the end of the world comes this year or a hundred years from now, we are called to the same thing. And may everything that's going on in our society today cause us to be more fervent to preach the gospel of Jesus and to make disciples. Now what we're going to see in Matthew 24 and 25 that Jesus talks about the fact that what is to come tomorrow truly does affect our today. What comes tomorrow affects how we are to live right now. So let's go ahead and open up God's word to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to pull out your cell phone. We use the English Standard Version here at Woodside. Uh, in Matthew 24 and, and through 25. If you have a copy of God's Word, it's near the middle of the Bible. It's the first gospel. And as you're turning there, I want to let you know a little bit about what is happening here in Matthew. About the, the theme of the book. Who the author was. Because it's important to understand these things as we dive into the book of the Bible. We don't just want to come to 24 and 25 without understanding. Understanding why the book was written, who wrote it, and to understand the context of what's going on. And so Matthew was written by uh, the disciple Matthew, who was a tax collector called by God, who left his tax collecting, uh, and he became a disciple of Jesus. And the reason for writing this gospel by Matthew is to show that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Jewish Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is indeed King of the Jews. Now it's important to know that because different gospels are written for different reasons. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's why they look different. That's why there's different historical accounts shared or they're spoken in different ways. And the book of Matthew is written to show that Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. So we have to understand that as we come to our text today. We have to also understand that Jesus has just gone in and to the temple and he has has talked to the Jews and he has condemned them and he's proclaimed woes upon them before we get into our text today. So let's go ahead and we will join Jesus as he's leaving the temple in Matthew 24, one through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So as we look at the word of the Lord today, as we look at the text Of Scripture. There's three different things we're going to see Jesus telling his disciples uh, about his coming and about, uh, about what's about to happen to them in their society. You see, he's going to be talking about three different things. First is the great destruction, this is referring to the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. The second is the great deception that there will be many who will come who claim to be Christ and who will try and lead God's people astray. And the third is the great declaration that those who endure to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. So let's go ahead, let's dive into the great destruction as Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. And so Matthew 24, one starts out by saying, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now, we have to understand uh, a little bit about uh, the, the structure of uh, the area that Jesus is currently in. I want to show you a picture of that so you understand uh, what's about to happen. Uh, because what we have in Jerusalem is we have the Temple Mount. This is where the temple would have sat. Now, uh, down through there is what's called the Kidron Valley, and it leads up to what's called the Mount of Olives. Now, the majority of Matthew 24 and 25 is actually taking place up on the Mount of Olives. This is called the Olivet Discourse. What that means is that it was a teaching that was taught on the Mount of Olives. And so what happens here is Jesus and the disciples are over here by Temple Mount, and Jesus is leaving the temple. Now, it's important to understand what has just happened in uh, 2330. Thirty-seven through 39 Jesus has said this to Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." what Jesus is doing here is he is signifying that the temple is no longer relevant. He's signifying that the temple is no longer the place that the glory and presence of God resides. The Jewish temple is no longer where the Holy of Holies is. And if you think about this, this is a massive statement because if you look throughout the entire Old Testament, the temple and the tabernacle, it is the center of Jewish life they determined all of their festivals upon it. Their calendar was built around it. Their lives were based upon it. And so for Jesus to say that the temple is no longer relevant and it is desolate is a massive statement. And really what we're supposed to see here is Jesus is actually leaving the temple. Can I throw that picture back up again, please? Uh, of the temple mount and the uh, and the the Olivet Mountain. Yes, thank you. Uh, So basically what's happening here is Jesus is leaving the temple. And what he's going to do, he's going to go down through the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives. And actually what he's doing is he's signifying this idea that the presence of God is actually leaving the temple and going away. And he ends up on the Mount of Olives which is is a a place that the return of Christ is supposed to have a a great peace within it. Actually, uh, if you look down there at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, you see all of those little gray things. Those are actually tombstones. And this is a place that many people have wanted to be buried. It's so full there's no more graves left. Because they want to be closest when the Messiah returns. And so they believed it and they they were buried there so that they could be those who were to raise first when the Messiah returns. And so what happens here is Jesus is leaving the temple and he's signifying that the presence is leaving the temple. That's a massive thing to understand. And to understand that Jesus now himself is the holy of holies. If you remember, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the temple between uh, the Holy of Holies and the main worship area is torn in two. And what that signifies is that we now have direct access to God. But now what we're seeing is that the Holy of Holies, the place of worship, is actually in Jesus. Jesus Himself is the Holy of Holies. Jesus Himself is the very presence of God among us. Jesus is now the place of worship. Jesus is the perfect Savior and the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is all of those things. And so what we're seeing here is that is leaving out from the temple and now is going to be offered to the Gentiles. It means that no longer are the people of God exclusively Israel, but instead is offered to the nations. This is an incredible movement in the history of God's people. And so what we see here is he says this to his disciples and then they look and they say, Teacher, look at the temple, isn't it beautiful? (laughs) They miss it. That is a huge statement. He's just proclaimed these woes. And now he's leaving the temple and the disciples turn around and they say, teacher, look at these great buildings and stones. Now you can't blame them because honestly, the temple was incredible. The temple was the greatest structure in the Middle East in that day. Now you have to think, most of the stuff that was built in that area was one story. They didn't have skyscrapers like we do today. And the temple was absolutely massive. So you can imagine the disciples, they're just in awe of the temple. But Jesus, he responds to them. And it's so interesting what he says here. He says there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They say, look at the temple Jesus, isn't it amazing? He says, "Uh, listen, that's gonna be destroyed. It's gonna be completely obliterated. Now for a Jew, that's a huge thing to say. That this incredible architectural structure that is the center of their society is going to be destroyed. And this is actually fulfilled in AD 70 by the Romans. They go in and they absolutely destroy the temple. An urban legend actually says that they pried the rocks apart in order to get the gold that had been uh, melted in between as they laid gold on the temple. Every stone was taken off from another and it was absolutely obliterated and destroyed. Jesus' word was fulfilled. Now imagine being the disciples and having Jesus say this to you. And Jesus leaves. He states this, drops the mic, walks off, goes down the Kidron Valley, goes back up to the Mount of Olives. And we don't hear anything from the disciples until they're on the Mount of Olives. And this is quite a long walk. So you can imagine what's happening along this walk. The disciples are talking to each other like, did you hear what he just said? He said that the temple is going to be absolutely obliterated. We should probably ask him some questions. (laughs) You ask the question. No, I don't want to ask the questions. And so we, we come, and they're up on top of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is sitting down there. And this is what it says. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age. You can imagine this. The disciples were like, Jesus, come here, man. We want to talk to you for just a minute. You just said they're going to destroy the temple. Okay, so, well, that must mean that you're going to reign now, right? You're going to take your throne. You're going to destroy Rome. You're going to rule. Because that's what they saw the Messiah as, is this great deliverer who would come and deliver them from the Romans and the persecution of the Romans and rule and reign and Israel would be this great power. So they say, tell us the signs. What's going to happen? How are we knowing that this is the time for the close of the age? And Jesus answers them, see that no one leads you astray. It's so funny to look at the responses of Jesus sometimes. Sometimes they have nothing to do with what He has been asked at all. So tell us the signs. See that no one leads you astray. OK. And what he's going to tell them now is about this great deception that's going to come. It says in verse four. They say, tell us when this is going to happen. Tell us about the signs of when this return and this rule is going to happen. He says, you need to be aware that no one leads you astray. And then he tells them about a time that is coming. A time where there will be false teachers and false prophets who claim to be the Messiah. Who proclaim a gospel that is different than what the word of God says. And who claim to be the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He says, see that no one leads you astray. You know, Jesus' response here is practical, it's also pastoral. It's very practical for what is going to happen in life, but also he wants to guide them and encourage his disciples within this, and his encouragement is that no one leads you astray. We have to be aware as Christians that no one leads us astray. We have to know the word of God, the truth of God. We have to know scripture. We have to know the fundamentals of our faith. We have to know the word so well that when something false comes in, we can identify it. You may have heard this illustration before, but when they're uh, teaching the, uh, those who, who detect counterfeit money to, to detect a counterfeit, they don't take them and show them all of the different counterfeits right off the bat and have them look at all the counterfeits and see what's wrong with them and to memorize, okay, these are all the counterfeits, so when you see them, you know them. What they actually do is they have them study the real thing. They have them study the real thing and know every mark and know every detail and know everything within it so that when a counterfeit shows itself, they can say, that's not the real thing. You see, we don't need to go and study all of the different counterfeits. Now, it's good to know different world religions. It's different to know these different pieces. But we need to spend the majority of our time studying and knowing the word. We have to know it down pat. We have to know it by heart. We have to know it so that if there's deception and false doctrine that comes in, that we can say, that is not scriptural. And so that we can stand firm on the word of God and that we would not be led astray in the end times. And then Jesus continues. He says, listen, you're going to hear of wars. You're going to hear of rumors of wars. You're going to have nations rise against nations. See to it that you are not alarmed. Now, it's interesting because when you hear of these different news, it causes fear within us, it causes struggles within us, it causes us to ask the question, "Uh, God, what is going on, what now? But he says, see that you are not alarmed. I think it's interesting in Matthew 6 that Jesus says, a person cannot add one hour to their life by worrying. And it's very true we can't add one hour to our lives by worrying. Actually, different studies have showed that stress and worry actually shorten our lives. So Jesus is saying, listen, all this stuff is going to happen, but don't be alarmed. And it's practical in what he's explaining, but it's also pastoral. Because more than being prophetic and looking to the future and saying, this is when my return is going to be, he's saying, be perseverant. Persevere in your faith. Know that these things are going to come, but it's going to be a long road. Stand firm. Make disciples. Persevere. He says, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, even as I said that word, birth pains, Many of you women identified with this. If we think about this idea of birth pains, there's three different things that we see. Birth pains first mean that the baby is going to come sooner than it would before, right? There's something that's happened. There's something that's occurred. A process has now taken place. The second thing is that there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering that is to come. Third, is that by God's grace, there will be a culmination of a birth that would take place. These are three things that we can know as Christians. The return of Christ is sooner now than it has ever been in human history. So we know it's the beginning of the birth pains that we are closer now than we were before. Second, We know that we're gonna face suffering and pain and sorrows and trials. It's all throughout scripture. And finally, we can look forward to a day when Christ returns though, when there is that final culmination. To persevere, looking forward, knowing that the birth of a new heaven and a new earth is going to occur. He says, this is just the beginnings of the birth pains. He says, persevere. Continue forward. And that's something that we have to be aware of. We have to put our efforts into perseverance. Because the suffering and pain and hardships continue to come towards us. We have to set our minds firm on the word. We have to persevere in the midst of those sufferings. And Jesus continues on. He's going to share with his disciples what their lives are going to look like after he ascends into heaven. He tells them to persevere. He tells them that they're going to face suffering. Look at what he says to them. He says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This occurred. All of Jesus' disciples were martyred for their faith besides one. That's one of the greatest testimonies of the Christian faith, is that every disciple of Jesus Christ died for their faith. You don't die for something that you don't believe in you would think that one of them would have recanted of faith, said that it was false, but it was true. So they had to stand firm. Jesus predicted it, and it happened. They were hated, and they were killed. They were martyred. You know, it's interesting because as we look at this text, we live in America. And things have happened in America in the last year that we've never really experienced. But if we step back for just a minute and take a global perspective and we look at the rest of the world, there is suffering and tribulation and persecution for Christians throughout this world. If you think about northern India, Christians are killed and persecuted for their faith. If you think about the Middle East, Christians are killed and persecuted for their faith. If you went to those places right now and said, are we in the great tribulation? They look around at their suffering and their persecution and they may answer, yes. The reality is, is this has been true of Christians from the beginning of the establishment of the way, which is what the Christian faith was called. There's been suffering and persecution and hardships. Yet Jesus says that we can take heart, for he has overcome the world. And we can persevere. Persevere, which means to persist in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. It means to set our minds firmly on Christ to realize that there will be great deception. You know, one of the greatest deceptions and teachings that face our culture today is the prosperity gospel. What this teaches is that Jesus only wants you to be healthy and wealthy. He only wants all of the best things for you, meaning monetary gains. What this teaches is that Jesus would never allow suffering to face your life, sickness to face your life, and those things all exist outside of God's control. That's simply not what the Bible says. Amen. Jesus says that we are going to suffer. And we suffer not for what we've done wrong, but for what we're doing right. Yeah, right. Suffering of the righteous servant of Christ. Jesus suffered, though he was perfect. He was hated, though he came down to die on a cross For the sins of all those who put their faith and trust in him. We have to set our minds to face trials, to face hardship, and to know we're going to stand firm. Because Jesus says, as this lawlessness increases, many's love will grow cold. What that's saying is society around you is going to continue to love God less and less and less. The principles of God are going to continue to go away and people are not going to love each other. That's what's going to happen. And as that occurs, we can know that the return of Christ is closer than it was before. We can also know That as Jesus said, if they hated me, they will also hate you. And so we need to learn and know to persevere. That is the great declaration of Christ. Is that there will be suffering and persecution that comes. And all of this was fulfilled in the life of the disciples. And we continue to see it played out today. He says in verse 13, but... The one who endures to the end will be saved. Perseverance in the faith is a mark of those who have been saved. Perseverance in the faith is a marker of those who have been redeemed by God. So, brothers and sisters, persevere in the faith, stand firm in the faith. Those who endure to the end. Will be saved. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, don't play Christianity. Because you will only go so far in playing Christianity before your love grows cold because of the suffering and persecution that is going on around us. Think about the parable of the soils. There are those that receive the word, they spring up and then they're, uh, they are scorched out when the sun comes out, which is persecution and suffering because they're not rooted. If you've never truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ today is the day. Don't count on your parents' faith to save you. Don't count on your church attendance to save you. Don't count on your tithe to save you. Don't count on your scripture memory to save you. Don't count on coming to church on Christmas and Easter to save you. Don't count on saying you're a Christian on Facebook to save you. Don't count on I pray once in a while when I'm in trouble to save you. Don't count on your good works to save you. Surrender your life to Jesus. There was a beautiful story this last week that I received in an email. It's from a gal in this church. She's actually getting baptized next week. She grew up and she knew God. Throughout her life, she would have said she was a Christian. Yet as she learned what it truly meant to give her life to Jesus over the last few years, she came to a realization that she never truly surrendered and made him Lord of her life. And just a few weeks ago, she surrendered her life to Jesus. And next Sunday, she is standing before this congregation and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I live for him from this day forward. Never surrendered your life to Jesus. Today is the day. Because while we will face struggles and sorrows and pain, we will also have joy and peace, freedom, peace that passes all understanding. We can rejoice in the Lord always. The reality is, is that God will give us the strength to persevere. God will give us the strength to endure to the end. Yet we must surrender our lives to him. If you know Christ as your savior, if you love God, if you love his word, if you love his people, and you're fearful, do not be afraid. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He has said, in this world you will face trials. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That God is our firm foundation. That God will uphold us with his mighty, righteous right hand. Jesus said to his disciples when they come and they put you before the trials do not be fearful because I will give you the words I will be with you Jesus as he closes out this passage says that the world's going to continue to turn their backs on God even those who are within the church their love will grow cold Yet those who endure to the end will be saved. Will be saved. It is going to happen. You will be saved. That's a beautiful guarantee. That's a beautiful truth. So, how then should we live? while we live each day as if it is our last because we are not guaranteed tomorrow the word of God says that life is but a vapor yet we do not need to fear death Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain see for the Christian the reality is is that death is a doorway to everlasting life My encouragement is do not fear those who can destroy the body. But fear him who can destroy the body and throw your soul into hell. That's what Jesus said. So if you don't know Christ today, surrender your life to Christ. If you're a Christian, make a commitment today. Make a commitment to stand firm. If you are a parent, make a commitment to raise your kids in the word of God. Raise the next generation to be a generation that knows the Word of God so well it can identify all the counterfeits. A generation that may face suffering and trials but can stand firm knowing that the Word of God is the truth. Grandparents, you may be the only influence of Christ in the lives of your grandkids. Use those opportunities to raise them in the Lord. Pray for the next generation. Teach the next generation. Preach the gospel to your neighbors. Live out our faith in love for one another. Stand firm. Proclaim his truth. Because the gospel is going to be preached. And it is the very power of God unto salvation. So whether the world ends tomorrow or the world ends 100 years from now, tomorrow, let's go tell someone about Christ. Tomorrow, let's fan the flame of our relationship with Jesus by reading and studying his word. Tonight, let's pray over our children. Tonight, let's pray for the salvation of the unbelievers in our neighborhood. Today, let's ask the Lord how he wants us to invest into his kingdom. Because tomorrow's reality will change today's actions. So may we stand firm, steadfast, immovable, always being ready to give an answer for the hope